Hello, hello. Hello, I'm Jessica Benoist Young. And I'm Melanie Reed. And this is Best Line. Worst Line. Where we we uh, indulge in scripted items and we nice. <laughs> analyze them for their best and worst lines. I'm going to say real quick, I didn't have any of the latter this week. Worst? So. I, I did. <laughs> I did. I mean, it's really, but it's really obscure and really niche. So, and I was talking to our guest right uh-huh. before you got here about how I chose it, or like kind of how I chose it. Um, so let Jessie, me tell you, should we introduce our guest? This, this, you guys, so I feel like in season two so far of this podcast, we're having a lot of like throwbacks to the beginnings, like the origins of this podcast. And I'd say this is it right here. Um, This is a movie that we've been talking about. This is a guest we've been talking about since the very beginning. And I would say that, that our guest this for this episode is part of what inspired this like podcast to take its ultimate form. Melanie and I had a screenwriting group, a script group, with this fantabulous person I'm about to introduce. I had the pleasure of working uh, at a daily local newspaper with our guest for, gosh, three, almost three years? Something like that, yeah. He is the movie master like when i think of movies i think of our guest today he had a podcast with another uh friend of ours uh called let's get graphic a comic book podcast before podcasts were cool <laughs> we we would I, I don't know the best word annoy astound just generally gobsmack anyone who was around us when we would start talking about movies because like you are an encyclopedia and I would just like start quoting crap and and somehow then in in the span of like a five minute conversation we would have talked about every single award that every actor in the movie had won every award the movie had won and like any trivia we knew about it and we'd be doing voices and quotes. And so it's just, um, it's just nonstop movie madness with the incredible Marcus J. Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So the movie, uh, that is in question is sort of the, uh, pinnacle I feel of, of, we talked about having a script writing group, this is the script writing movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think we mentioned this to Melanie multiple times you that did, she needed to you watch were writing it. A mo- mm-hmm. And well, I was okay. writing a movie that was very, very uh, reminiscent of this. Inspired, inspired by? Inspired by? Yeah, because it was super meta. Very like, meta. The, the movie that you were uh-huh. writing was very meta. And this movie... Um, so we're we're talking about adaptation today, which is literally about adapting a book into a screenplay. Um, but it's so meta, and it weaves in different worlds. And Jessica, you were writing a screenplay that was kind of doing something similar. Yeah, I mean, yes. 
I don't know if anything's ever going to happen with it, so I don't really want to give it away. <laughs> no, but we we can just say awesome, you can, we I can just say, say that. that you were you were writing a very meta screenplay yes. that was around the same like it had similar conventions, Correct. similar but different conventions. Correct. So thinking about like meta movies where it kind of weaves in the art and craft of writing into the lives of the characters. You both have mentioned that adaptation is like the pinnacle of it. I always think, and Jess, I think we mentioned this one too, when we were talking about stranger than fiction. Yes. Like that to me is the other one yes. that I am like, and it, it that came that out kind of takes that for me. It came later. out like not too much later though. Like only a year or mm. two later. Right. Or three years later. I was definitely a Kristen Chenoweth fan. Uh, 2006. Okay, so she was three in it. years, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think of that one, too. And I think of that one a little more for, like, novel writing. But yeah. still, like, yes, the whole idea of, like, this insertion into the thing that's being written. Yes. And I noticed, too, uh, that Maggie Gyllenhaal, I totally forgot that she plays, like, the little girlfriend in this movie. Because she is, mm-hmm. the, like, the main romantic interest in stranger than fiction so we have a lot of people here with with double meta because um one of the reasons she graduated (laughs) she did um one of the reasons that i think we ended up like coming back to this movie is we saw well i mean this is how long this conversation about this movie has been going on when we saw that unbearable weight of massive talent was coming out, we were like, oh, that would be a fun duo. We ended up just deciding to just cover this movie, but I did. Which there's plenty to talk I about. I did here. watch Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and I didn't realize that it also has a screenplay aspect to it. <laughs> so. And it's super meta. Yeah, it really is. I think it was like $7 for the rental, and I was like, I'll just let them tell me about it. That's fine. Um, but I did watch Adaptation, and uh-huh. this was the first time. So both you and Marcus have seen Adaptation before. Yes. I had not seen it. I knew about it because um, the year it came out was the year of my, like, Hollywood awakening. Like, I was always into movies and stuff, but I was 13 or 12 and 13 that year. But it was the year that Chicago came out. I was so obsessed with Chicago that I saw it, like, six times in theaters and, like, was following the award cycle for that show or for that year like crazy. And it was like, I remember everybody who was nominated that year. I remember all the movies that were nominated because I was so like invested in Catherine Zeta-Jones winning for Chicago and for Chicago winning for Best Picture. And they both did, which is good. Um, I would have been really mad if they didn't. But I remember... Chris Cooper winning for this. I remember Meryl Streep being nominated. I remember Nick Cage being nominated. And it's one of those movies like that, The Hours, Diane Lane. Like I remember what movie, I think Unfaithful was another one that year. Um, I remember what was up because of because of my obsession with Chicago because I was just like so, I, I collected everything for that. So adaptation has been in my periphery, I guess, for years, but I've never seen it. As I was saying to both Marcus and Jessica before we started recording, I appreciated the movie. I don't think I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciated I can see that. it. I, I think can the performances see that. were good. I don't think I enjoyed it. It was weird. Oh, God. I was telling Melanie before we started, like, it's very, it's not a movie that I get, I go back and forth on, like, is it like a song where you have to like maybe kind of work your way to enjoying it? Or is it like, 
well, if it's a great movie, should it just be on its merits like you like it the first time you see it or you don't? So I'm very mixed on that. But I'm, I love it, but I can understand not enjoying it. Um, I think, like, I even if I were to watch it a few more times, I don't think I would enjoy it. I think, again, I think I would have an appreciation for it. I appreciated the construction of the script. I thought it was, I thought the performances were excellent. I think the script, there were fo- funny moments. For me, it was a pacing thing. Like, uh-huh. the pace uh-huh. is not fast. Um, and that's not saying that I have, have well, I don't, do have no attention span, which is like why I watch TV way more than I watch movies, which is like the grand irony behind this podcast. Um, like the only movies I've, I watch are the ones that Jessica makes me watch. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, but like there were so many moments where it was just like quiet, which was kind of like the beauty of the movie in a lot of ways, because the whole struggle is he's figuring out how do you adapt a nonfiction book about flowers into screenplay. And there's a lot of talk about like, well, nothing really happens. Like there's that one, like we'll get into it more, but when he goes, that monologue. Yeah. Who is that? Who plays McKee, the writing? Oh, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Yeah. Oh, that monologue is amazing. (laughs) So for people who haven't seen adaptation, should we, and I should not be the one to do this. Um, should we set up kind of the general overview of like what the movie is? Or does somebody want to take a stab at it? Because there is a... No, I don't. Marcus, do you no, want to take a stab a at it? I was trying to explain it to my, uh, to my wife while I was watching it because she was like, I have no idea what this even is. Yeah, I'm with your wife. Basically, Nicolas Cage plays Charlie Kaufman, who is a fict- an actual person. Mm-hmm and the screenwriter who wrote this movie. And in real life, he was hired to to adapt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Real book, and real person. He had massive problems trying to do this. So the movie becomes kind of a meta, like sort of semi-adaptation of The Orchid Thief along with his actual life with his invented twin brother of trying to adapt The Orchid Thief and the impossibility of like, adapting this book where not a lot happens and it's mostly about flowers like kind of thing and give it a story which he does but has to invent a lot along the way and i love that you mention melanie that like it feels off right there isn't much going on the pacing is off right because that's exactly what we're supposed to feel like. Oh, it's intentional. It's entirely intentional. Because when he sits down in the beginning in the meeting with Tilda Swinton and he's like, I don't want this to be a typical Hollywood movie. He doesn't want any of that. And he's sitting there thinking like, how can I make this actually just about the flowers? And how can he make it something that doesn't feel like a typical Hollywood movie? And so you really realize especially when it does take that turn in the end to have more of your typical Hollywood beats, you are very much like feeling like this is really not normal. You know, you have to stick with it for whatever reason. It's kind of jarring because you're not, it it doesn't give you anything you, there's not really a safe harbor for what to expect and how the story how the story should go right i did not realize this but we talk about how you know the name in and of itself (laughs) adaptation i thought it was an i thought it was an original screenplay i mean it is an original screenplay but 
because the book Orchid Thief was optioned to become the screenplay, even though this only like very, I mean, it doesn't even feel like it uses enough of the actual source work, you know, like it's so tangential and, and abstract. I think they use just enough of the elements Probably. to justify So it. this was actually uh, nominated for a best adapted screenplay. And it's, and when you look at the, the entry, the nomination is Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman and Donald based Kaufman. on the book, the orchid thief by Susan Orlean. So, it just does such a like incredible job of like really blurring the lines of reality since we're dealing with like real things and real people, but in this very like fantastical, not even fantastical, this very like subtle and I don't even have the word for it. This movie just messes with my brain. I don't know. <laughs> it, I would say messes with your brain is like a great way of expressing describing the movie not just like i mean okay the first like opening sequence you have this voiceover from nicholas cage like basically like berating himself about how like fat and ugly he is and how he's worthless um and that's him as charlie kaufman being like i can't do that he's like suffering from writer's block and then there's this like whole like shot of all of these images of kind of like different ways of life happening in the universe one of which is a very graphic <laughs> birth sequence like human birth sequence and i as a female woman who has female woman female human who has not given birth saw that and like physically recoiled i was like that is oh no ah oh um and it was just like i that was like how the movie started for me. And I was like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable right now. And I was like, what is this going to be? And then it didn't really ease up on the discomfort, but for different reasons. And I think you have that pacing of there's, there is a very like pedantic pace to the movie. Yeah. I feel like his neuroticism doesn't really like let you relax no. either because he's so, he's so always, between just his normal neuroticism and then the like trouble he's having writing this movie, it's just amped up to like 11. It like, so feels well like done, an anxiety though. attack. Well, but yeah, but that's so, I mean, I get that. It's so realistic to me. And that's something that I think always stuck with me about this movie um, is, is like, yeah, this is kind of what goes on. Like nobody hears this and is like, no, that's not, you know, like it's mentioned when he's in the seminar later in the movie. Um, one of my favorite lines was the the guy who's running the seminar, played by Brian Cox, is just kind of berating him about various things and ends this whole monologue that he has by yelling, and God help you if you use voiceover in your screenplay <laughs> while <laughs> they're like interrupting one of the nonstop voiceover monologues and it's like, that's going on in right, Charlie's and like, head. And that's like an overlay together. Like you have Brian Cox talking mm -hmm. um, as McKee, as the screenwriting expert who Charlie Kaufman at this point um, is who Nick Cage is like the over the voiceover is only at this seminar because he has writer's block and mm -hmm. his twin brother, Donald Kaufman, also played by Nick Cage. He got a separate credit for it. 
had the success, like sold a screenplay, the first screenplay he ever a wrote because he went doesn't even work. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Like there's a great part where they're talking. He's like asking like Donald really like admires his brother and asks his brother for like solves for the screenplay. But the only reason his screenplay sold is because he went to the seminar by Brian Cox. So Nick Cage or Charlie Kaufman then goes to the seminar uh, by McKee, played by Brian Cox. And so he's having this like anxious moment overlaid with this, this voiceover anxious moment that is overlaid on top of uh, Brian Cox's monologue. And then he says that line, like, and God help you if you yeah. use voiceover. And I thought that was, and I loved clever. that because what I liked about a lot of the, the like conversations that Charlie and Donald have and what we get from, you know, these like screenwriting rules from the seminar and stuff is like, Everything that's going on in the portion of the movie about Charlie is what we are being led to believe a bad movie. It's making a bad movie. We've relied almost entirely on voiceover, but Mm -hmm. it's such good voiceover. Like nobody would ever watch those parts and be like, this is bad. Why are we doing this? It's good. It's incredible. I've never seen it done like this before. I've never seen and and performed so well. We have to give Nicolas Cage credit for like, this is a tough, this is not an easy role. This is not an easy script to perform. This is not, this is hard. And he like, like nailed it like above and beyond. Well, I think for Charlie Kaufman, like it's kind of a, it's one of those you can't break the rules until you know the rules kind of a thing. And so he he knows he's breaking the rules, but he knows how, like, if I'm doing this, it right. has to be purposeful. It has to be this exact, like, great voiceover that would be indispensable. Like, movie doesn't work yeah. without this voiceover. And I want to shout out, I, so Robert McKee is a real person that Brian Cox oh, really? is playing. I have that <laughs> book, like. I totally, I I don't know where it's at at this point, but I do own Story by Robert McKee, and so it's, it's it, all, it is very helpful, actually. See, Absolutely. I didn't even know that. I just, like, but yeah, as we, like, get farther in, like, everybody in this is, is a real person. And apparently... Yeah, I totally had that book. Um, apparently, um, Robert McKee chose Brian Cox to play him. Oh, really? That's yeah. Cool. And I've heard that uh, the real Robert McKee is like a thousand times more intense even than Brian Cox portrayed him as, which I can't can't imagine. Like, (laughs) like, I don't want to be under that oppressive glare. I would make it through that (laughs) Even more so than than (laughs) Honestly, in my head, what I would choose for the best line is a massive cop-out. And I would just say, like, all the voiceover. All the voiceover, every piece of voiceover I would have, if it were realistic, written it all down. Like the opening, the opening monologue voiceover is just so, it's so good. It's incredible. You know, like I only would write down snippets of it. Like I would be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese and plays the oboe. (laughs) It's all... And, and and then there are, like, pieces of voiceover where it's like, that exact thing has gone through my head while I was doing what he's doing. Well, I think it really know? gets across. It really gets across how not being able to write sometimes just makes you hate yourself. Like, <laughs> yes. It's like, I know how to do this. I'm halfway good at this, at least. I think mm-hmm. so. You know, like, why am I such an idiot that I can't make this, you know, 
come out like it really at least like for me it was like it, it makes you feel that like what it feels like to not be able right. to write. and your brain does not want you to feel upset and your brain doesn't want you to feel stupid so your brain does mm. all this stuff to like distract you and make you think of like you know what will make you happy which is why one of my favorite scenes from this movie ever is when he is sitting down to start it to begin to begin how to start I'm hungry I should get coffee coffee would help me think but I should write something first then reward myself with coffee coffee and a muffin okay so I need to establish the themes maybe banana nut that's a good muffin that's a good muffin (laughs) (laughs) and that's how it is sometimes you look at a blank page and you're just like okay what what, how do i even begin this and then yes what can i distract myself with for five minutes i didn't get a snack i'm gonna go get a snack no 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 i'm gonna sit here and do this (laughs) i think that's why like the movie works so well is like it Mm -hmm. is that i mean as I said, I appreciated it. I'm not sure I enjoyed it, but I think that's why I appreciate it because like I've been in those writing moments where I'm just like staring at a page going, what am I doing? We were talking about just the process of writing and like if we're writing anything and I was saying I just started a newsletter because like I just needed some deadline to write Mm -hmm. just to make myself do something because I haven't done any of my own writing in a while and that whole kind of inner monologue of like, distracting yourself what are you doing oh my god I'm not good at this like I remember when I was taking a few a writing class a few years ago and I was like well I was telling the teacher I was like well I paced around my apartment and I lied on the floor and stared at the ceiling and I think I might have come up with one line he was like congratulations you're a writer and I was like thanks I did it I did it yay well I think the movie really gets across like you see how Charlie's agonizing over this as, and, and it's really encapsulated, I think in one scene where he's like totally agonizing over this and Donald comes in with him, you know, and he's just, Oh, well, what about this? And what about this? And he's like, I know how to write. I'm somewhere, somehow writing right now, but like Donald just is knocking this off because he's not really concerned with, you know, what am I trying to say? He's just trying to knock off like a, screenplay that will yeah he's trying to make money like it's kind of valid right it's like he's viewing it as a job right yeah and charlie's like trying to make art or say something about something and yeah so i think that really there was a scene that really encapsulates yeah it's like have you guys read bird by bird by Anne lamott Mm -mm. oh i totally have Um, okay so she it's a great it's a like one of those books on writing and how to write that everybody's like, oh, read Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And she starts talking about it like, you know, her brother had this project and that he like waited to the last minute and then was so overwhelmed by it. And her dad was like, you just start it bird by bird. Like, like it was a project on birds and you just start writing about bird by bird. And so that's where the title comes from. And in the first chapter of this book, she talks about how her students don't want to be writers. They want to be published. And that is the Mm -hmm. difference between Donald and Charles is like, Charles is a writer and Donald wants to be published. And Mm -hmm. you have to enjoy the act and creation of writing, or maybe not enjoy it because it is torturous, but like be committed to that. Well, he says something about that too. Like, 
I don't remember the exact line. Maybe somebody else wrote it down, but he does say something about how like doing something new, doing something that hasn't been done before. And I don't oh, remember yeah. what he says. Um, I wrote it, I think. Let me see if I can find it. But yeah, he, he mentions like, because I think it's, it is when like Donald is trying to like, trying to tell him, oh yeah. When he's like, Donald really wants to add some more action into it because that's what Hollywood would do. So he's trying to help him out with these beats and these, these story devices and things like that, like drugs and, and sex and stuff. And, and Charlie's like, just trying to tell him like, you know, I'll get there basically, but like, it's hard doing this because I don't want it to be like that. I don't want it to be like anything that's been seen in Hollywood and so it's just, you know, when you're doing something that's never been done before, you just, like, it's hard to figure out. Um, yeah. And um, I'm not doing it justice at all, I'm sure. But I do remember that. I should have written it down, and I almost did. But there's so there was so much I could have taken notes on in this movie. And it just yeah. got to a point where I'm like, I need to be super selective here. Well, I love that, like, Charles, Charlie Kaufman, is, like, thinking about the logic of the writing and like what makes sense especially when i feel like where this movie lost me a little bit was like towards the ending where it becomes like where you have the car chase with orlean and uh laroche and then spoil alert donald ends up dead because he flies out of a truck um and then laroche gets eaten by an alligator a deus um, ex machina oh yeah <laughs> Well, and that's where it Donald's becomes screenplay. Donald's movie, yeah, where Donald takes over and is adding the Hollywood. And like, oh, we have to have a gunfight, and we have to have and a car so, chase. Like, and so, the, the line between like what's reality and then what was in the like in the movie, and like they're writing themselves into the movie, like that's where I think I was just like, what is? And this is where maybe you're right, Marcus. Like a second or third viewing would be like, oh, I follow what's going on because I was like, I was really in the like, wait, which timeline are we in, and who is what? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it lost me a little bit. It was just like, I got lost in a timeline. But what I think is so interesting, like one of the lines earlier on that like made me chuckle was when they're talking about logic and talking about Donald's movie. He's talking about like um, the prisoners <laughs> in the basement, who's also a cop. And it's like the dual thing. And how can you be Charlie in the basement like, and at the police station how, at yeah. the same time? <laughs> how can you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and working in a police station at the same time and like without missing a beat donald just goes trick photography and i'm just like that was just yeah. such a funny he's like, like no that's not it reminded and he's me like of, no that's not what i mean yeah sure whatever okay it reminded me of a great line from another um movie the the classic airheads <laughs> um with there's three of you you're not exactly lone like <laughs> about the name of the band the lone rangers <laughs> like because it's like it is very like Okay, so they're having a motorcycle chase and a, a horse versus motorcycle <laughs> chase. And this is presumably, it, it also reminded me of the movie, um, I, was it um, Identity with like Ray Liotta and a bunch of people, John Cusack, where it does all take place. And like, it's like this person that has multiple personality disorder and all the personalities are I don't think I've killing seen each that. other. I think it might have even come out oh, in the gosh. same year. Like, <laughs> I think it did literally come out in 2003. I kind of uh-huh. like that movie, but it is very much like, okay, right. we're stretching or the when he figures, Yeah, when bit. he figures out, like, his one of his gimmicks that he wanted to use is that the serial killer eats his victims. 
So then a serial killer <laughs> thinks he's eating the victim that is his other personality, so he's really eating himself. <laughs> and, yes. and this, I think, comes about when, like, Charlie's trying to be a little more supportive and less negative to him, and Charlie's just like, cool. <laughs> that sounds great. That kind of reminds me, one of my, um, one of my favorite lines from the movie, and it's, it's not the line itself so much. It's how Nicolas Cage delivers it, but there's several scenes throughout the movie of Charlie, like, in bed agonizing, and then Donald is, like, laying in the doorway, kind of just, you know, going on about his thing. He's a, he says of McKee, he's a former Fulbright scholar. Are you a former Fulbright scholar, Charles? <laughs> like, and he's not saying it to be, like, you know, he's not trying to be right. a jerk about it. He's just saying... Because Donald, that's the thing about Donald is you can't hate him. He's not no, trying no. to be mean to anybody or be dishonest or be whatever. He's just, he's totally who he is. And, and Charlie is not totally who, you know, he's always trying what's to be. What's the difference? Really, like, Donald really does admire his brother. Like, there really is, like, a love there. Yeah, he does. It's, it's... And he knows he's smarter than him, like, in his own way. It's such a good juxtaposition, too, of, like the term imposter syndrome wasn't really around when this movie came out as, as heavily as it is in no. the you know, current conversation now. But like this characterization of Charlie is, is the poster for imposter syndrome. He is clearly capable. And like, he'll even say he's capable. He's even capable of like mentoring other people and being very, I don't know the correct word, but like he, he can talk about these things in, in a really knowledgeable way, but like he's just getting in his own way. He's convincing himself he can't do it or that he's doing it badly. And Donald is just sort of the, is like showing the opposite of that, of that, like that personality type and that, um, type of person that can just like jump into anything and be like, I've got this, mm. you know, I don't, I can do it. Why can't I do it? You right. know, I can at least try. And, and then they succeed because they don't have as much of this like negative self-talk and, and, yeah. and honestly, like in parts of it, kind of like self-sabotage, kind you know, Charlie's entire self-sabotage. <laughs> well, he's not doing like typical self-sabotage behavior. He's just kind of dragging his feet. And then when we get to the point where he's like trying to, he thinks he's got it in his head that meeting Susan and talking to Susan will be his breakthrough. And then he like chooses like he freaks out and chooses not to. It's it's a mental self. It's not a it's not a active self sabotage as one would think about like you know like doing drugs or like any like, right. Like I guess at one point or anything he, like that. But he does call the agent and just says, "Get me out of this," which I guess yeah. is pretty pretty cut and dry. Like trying to quit. So wow, we've had we've had some discussion. I I think. Let's talk about the lines. I really don't feel comfortable picking <laughs> a best line. Okay. Yeah. So this is where, where I had trouble with a best line here is I loved so many of Susan's lines as like profoundly, yes. profoundly wonderful, like encapsulations of like life. But then I was like, how much of this is actually the text from the book? Oh, I'm versus... sure all of it. Right. And so like, there's some things like she says, like, 
She says, how could they know that because their little dance, the world exists because it does simply that they're doing what, like she's talking about bees. Um, they're doing what they're designed to do. Something doing what they're designed to do. Something something large large and significant significant happens happens. in this sense. They show us all how to live, how the only barometer you have is your heart. I'm like, that's beautiful. And I wish, but that was LaRoche. Oh yeah. That's her quoting LaRoche at the flower show. When you exactly. spot your flower, you don't let anything get in your way. Yeah, I loved that it, one. Exactly. And that is like a beautiful line um, just about like life and just the simplicity of it and that we overcomplicate it. And it's a nice juxtaposition of um, everything with Charlie. And then she says later, too, what I came to understand is that change is not a choice. And like that is like, yes, such a like profoundly good encapsulation of like what life is Mm -hmm. but then i was like i don't think i can choose any of these as my best line because i think i don't think it is the like what the movie is about i think they're beautiful lines and i don't think it's the script that was written like i think that was from the book right so i'm like i they're they're well used Mm -hmm. in the script to make a point and like it kind of especially that change is not a choice it's like charlie is view on how to write is changing and it's not necessarily by his choice and all of these things like the world around him is making him change all of this um so what i chose as my best line is actually like one of the last lines if not the last line in the movie is anyway it's done and that's something yeah and the reason i chose it is because he spends this whole movie struggling to write and so much of the time like struggling to get like the perfect word and the perfect thing on paper and like as a writer that doesn't exist and sometimes you just have to have it done and that's something and so i thought yeah and if you make it across the finish line you're exactly and so that whole like the whole process of writer's block and writing is summed up so brilliantly in this anyway in a voiceover anyway it's done and that's something and so that's why i chose that as my best line what i ultimately think i came up with was kind of a tie between the two but so i'll I'll go with my first one and it's very simple and just i guess speaks to me And uh, I like when he just says, I've been on this planet for 40 years and I'm no closer to understanding a single thing. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But what I liked is where we get, we, so you think of this movie, like you pull yourself out of the actual movie itself and you think of Charlie Kaufman, the person, the real person, not the character played by Nick Cage, but like him going through this to get to this point and like him making the decisions to, to turn what was supposed to be an adaptation just about Susan and John into when he goes Uroboros and he puts himself in and he's putting himself in and that we get to see that we get to see that happen. Like almost exactly how it went for him. Right. And so I love when we catch that moment when he says, it feels like the only thing I'm qualified to write about is myself. And you see the light bulb go off. Mm-hmm. And then we have this full, full on meta spiral where he's like, we open on Charlie Kaufman, fat, old, bald, repulsive, sitting in a Hollywood restaurant across from Valerie Thomas, uh, a, a lovely statuesque film executive, Kaufman, uh, trying to get a writing assignment. 
wanting to impress her, sweats profusely. Fat, bald, Kaufman paces furiously in his bedroom. He speaks into his handheld tape recorder and he says, Charlie Kaufman, fat, bald, repulsive, old, sits at a Hollywood restaurant with Valerie Thomas. Kaufman, repugnant, ridiculous, jerks off to the book jacket photo of Susan Orlando. Watching this like spiral down into him deciding like, oh, I'm going to put myself, like I'm not making this an adaptation anymore. I'm making this the story of how I went crazy adapting this movie and just commit to it. And, and it worked. It totally worked. So I think my line is that whole, that whole repetition of the, of like him inserting, but if I had to break, like put it down to one sentence, I, I, it feels like the only thing I'm qualified to write about is myself. And I get that. And that's, that again is like a big imposter syndrome, right? And I think it's why a lot of us feel like really more comfortable writing things that are personal to us or like inserting ourselves into a character, right? Totally. It's way easier for me to write a character that has some similarity to me or that I can at least like uh, empathize with or understand than like characters that don't have anything in common with me or are very opposite to me. Yes. Well, I think of a lot of her writing as, as craftsmanship. It's just, it's crafting sentences and words on a page and trying to get maximum effect out of them. But the art part to me is that you're, if you're hopefully doing it well, you're possibly at least dealing with some kind of issue in your life or something that you're, you know, con concerned mm -hmm. about or feeling. And that's apparent in the work somewhere, even if it's completely not, you there's something of you there that you're trying to work out right it's either huge like this is where this is <laughs> holy shit charlie kaufman is really trying to work this whole existence of his of yeah. himself out or like it can be small you know I, I, and i don't have a good example of that but it's just you know i feel like it's that's the art that's the part that's the trying to get something mm -hmm. true out oh and it's like it's so interesting that like that's like what he does, like he really just takes his whole process for the movie, like writing this movie, writing this adaptation and creates, like, I don't, I read somewhere that he didn't tell the studio that this was the direction that he was going to go. Like I Spike, wouldn't have, they would have Spike Jones, out. <laughs> yeah. Spike Jones like was on board with it, but like he didn't tell producers that this was the change until he turned the script in. He's like, here it is. <laughs> like, here's the script. No, that's smart. That's ultimate case of better to ask for forgiveness Absolutely. than permission. Like, and it well, worked. If somebody had told me that's what they were doing beforehand, then I would have been like, oh my god, no, there's no way that would work. And then when I was reading it, I think that would have like tinged my mm -hmm. experience of it. But if somebody just put that in front of me and I started reading it, I'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> this is crazy and amazing it and it's going to work. You have to go into it with, like, no expectations of what it's supposed to be. It shows you, too, the risk that studios were willing to take in that, like, specific, like, four or five-year yeah. stretch. Because, like, ten years before this, that would not now have happened. It... And, like, ten years later, that would not have... Like, now, this would Never. not right. exist. Like, this. 
Or it'd be a TV show. And he had just boom, 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 like three movies, like right in a row. I mean, he had Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and then his big, big home run knockout of the park in terms of awards anyways, or in terms of, I, I would guess... Eternal Sunshine. His, his legacy, I'd say. Mm. Eternal Sunshine became more more mainstream, I yeah. think. Because I, I've um, seen Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. yeah. Seen that one. S- three movies that I think that, yeah, I mean, I think those scripts would would have been, maybe not Eternal Sunshine, but being John Malkovich in adaptation, like... They, they were taking, those were risks. I mean, that, that was, these well, were not things that were being done. With and this one, he said, I haven't really been. And it was just that specific yeah, time period. Yeah. With this yeah, one, he yeah. said he thought his career was over. Like when he handed in the script, he was like, this is it. Done. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> ever going things. to hire me again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think almost any other time in Hollywood, his career probably would have maybe not been over, but he would not be on progressively bigger budgeted movies like he was like this wouldn't have gotten the budget that it got and then eternal sunshine definitely wouldn't have gotten you know to be even a bigger movie than that like because they just wouldn't have wanted to take the risk or even try to see the artistry or whatever of what he was trying to do yeah i it's it's interesting like as as we're talking about it more, I'm appreciating the movie more. I still don't think it'd be something I'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch it again. But, like, it's very well constructed. Like, I still don't think I enjoyed it. But, like, I appreciate it more and more. It's not a fun no. movie. No, it's not a fun movie. So much. Like, I mean, just the performances are so good. I mean, Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep. Like, she's good in everything. Well, and it's, and yeah, and it's this whole idea, too, that, like, as you dig deeper and deeper and deeper, you realize that, like, everybody is struggling and Mm -hmm. everybody has some tragedy or some emptiness that they're just like trying to overcome. And so this movie definitely has, it's like it's phases and you get to this phase in the middle where it's like kind of, it's depressing. You know, you find out more about Susan and you find out more about John LaRoche and like his tragic past. And, and you just see that like, it it is like you kind of mentioned like, Mm -hmm that the voiceovers kind of felt like an anxiety attack a little bit. Yes, but absolutely. But, like, I think that there were parts of it, too, where, like, you just feel that this cast, holy shit, like, the, the performances in this movie, if you have not seen this movie and we haven't spoiled it enough for you to go watch it, like, just, if you're a person who just wants to see, like, the craft of acting... Mm-hmm. Go watch this movie. If you're a fan of Nicolas Cage or Meryl Streep, or you're not very familiar with Chris Cooper and you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to go back and watch some Academy Award winning <laughs> Best Supporting Acting roles. Like, this movie is just so well performed that, like, just there's this, there is this section of the movie where we really do start to see a lot of Susan and, and John's fictionalized relationship i would assume but part of it i would is coming from the book but like the tension and the frustration and like how he constantly like he is so manic you know and and she's so like inspired and then let down by him on this like constant roller coaster you know like the turtles and the fish i loved one of my Mm -hmm. favorite lines and i texted this to melanie one of my favorite lines so he's talking about the fish so we come like 
she, Susan really admires how, how obsessed and how passionate and knowledgeable he is about the orchids. Then you come to find out that he's on this like cycle of, he just does this with something like every few years of his life. He because he just dives Mm. in, he becomes obsessive about this one thing and, and, and to some extent, like how to monetize it. And then he just drops it when, once it starts to get boring or, or hard, he's just done with it. So he's talked about turtles and she's like, how could you love turtles so much? And then just not care about turtles. I guess I'd just like to know how you can detach from something that you've invested so much of your soul in. I mean, didn't you ever miss turtles? The only thing that made your 10 year old life worth living? Look, I'll tell you a story, all right? I once fell deeply, you know, profoundly in love with tropical fish. I had 60 goddamn fish tanks in my house. I skin-dived to find just the right ones. Anisotromus virginicus, Holocanthus ciliaris, Chaetodon capistratus, you name it. Then one day I say, fuck fish. I renounce fish. I vow never to set foot in that ocean again. That's how much fuck fish. That was 17 years ago, and I have never since stuck so much as a toe in that ocean. And I love the ocean. But why? Done with fish. Done Done with fish. fish. Not even going to set foot in the ocean for another 17 years. That's how much fuck fish. (laughs) The grammatical groundbreaking that is like that's how much fuck Fuck fish fish. i love it i think i'm gonna put it on a shirt definitely in the running (laughs) marcus have you said your (laughs) best line not yet i don't think um i think that's definitely in the running for my best line i definitely had that clear at the top of my my notes because i i just it's it's the line it's how it's delivered it's just the whole thing working together is done with fish and and the way chris cooper says that line like (laughs) there's just i don't you know it's so good i don't know i had a hard time picking out a uh best line a lot of mine were um i think were donald's lines or laroche lines um so i had um mom called it psychologically taught as a favorite line (laughs) so (laughs) i love the way he says that's another case of delivery yeah just Nicola, the way Nicholas Cage delivers, mom called it psychologically <laughs> taught. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but, and also, um, um, McKee is a genius and hilarious. <laughs> I loved that. Yep. And it's so hard to approximate just the, the perfection of which it's yeah. delivered. But like, Oh, Donald is such, just, just Donald is a character, man. And I, it's very subtle, but it's huge. Like the difference is huge, but by very subtle performance choices that Nicholas Cage yes. is making. Very, very subtle. Yeah, it's just that like he's he's confident, like slightly mm-hmm. like thirty percent more or something, and yeah. that's the difference between between and he just if he has a passion or if he has like a hey, I wanna do this, he just mm-hmm. jumps in and does it and Charlie doesn't have that, whatever it is. He, he's just 
when more it's, reticent. Yeah, and it's very much like, and I like the parallels too. Like Charlie and Susan are these very like lost people, mm-hmm. like struggling to maintain yes. some sort of of um, professionalism and and things like that, and like and they're obsessing over the themes and the craft of the writing and putting this all together. And then there's like Donald and John who are just like, I'm going to do this thing and I, and I'm going to be good at it. And, uh, you know, John constantly is saying, I'm basically the smartest person I know. Yep. <laughs> that was another one to pat yeah. down for a best line. And when he's like, I am the only white person in, in North America that, knows how to breed these orchids or handle these orchids or whatever. Like he just is so willing to throw out like some massive unfounded credential and he believes it. Mm-hmm. The hubris. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's something I didn't think of was the mirroring. Like, there's a lot of mirroring that goes on between, between um, Kaufman and, and mm-hmm. Orlean, but like, you know, she's kind of falling in love with LaRoche throughout the movie as, as Kaufman's falling in yeah. love with her. Yes. Sort of. He's kind of falling in love with Susan Orlean. And then, but also, yeah, the mirroring between between Donald and LaRoche, I didn't yeah. even really think of. But yeah, they're both, like, they're the more confident characters. And, and also the professionalism between, you know, like, this is how you write a screenplay and this is how you do it right. well with Kaufman versus Orlean. Like, this is how you do journalism and write about your subject yeah. and say, you know objective and and so yeah that's something i didn't even quite think of in my mirroring too well we should say that like the a lot of this movie about orlean is obviously fictionalized like she like was very Mm. hesitant to i mean she did approve it because everybody else was on board with the way her way she is portrayed but like this is not her it is yeah not her at all i i would be if somebody did this like, if I heard, okay, we're going to adapt your book, and then this is what ended up, I would just be blown away. Like, what? <laughs> I'd be like, I am what? a drug addict who is... What? I'm snorting And I'm sleeping now. with the subject. Like, yeah, I would be like, uh, I'm a reporter. Okay, so I know, Jessica, you said you had a hard time choosing a worse line. I think, Marcus, you did too. I have a worse line, and it is because I was just like, there's no way that's what that character would say. Like, there's no way that's how she would respond in that moment. And this is so niche and so little. And it's Maggie Gyllenhaal's line where they're at a party. And Donald, Donald is, like, saying how hot she is or something. And how much he loves her. I didn't write down the line leading into it. But her response is that swell of you to say. And it was like, there is absolutely no way that this, like, hot, <laughs> young, 20-something Hollywood. makeup artist, Hollywood makeup artist, would swell. respond to be calling being called hot by the guy she's sleeping with, with that swell of you to say, like, what decade are we in? What, like, there is absolutely (laughs) no way that this character would say that line. I did not buy it for one minute. Like, it took me out of so much. And I was like, that, no, she would not. Like, who uses the word swell? I know. And so I, I mean, I've used the word swell, but like, not, just, ugh. So that was my worst line because I was just like, there's absolutely no way that this character, like that real, if that person was a real person in life, 
there's no way that that is authentic to what that character would say. And so that was my worst line in the movie because it was just like, this makes like, I I agree other, if, if I really tried to look at other parts of the script, I think it would be hard to find one, but that one, I was Mm -hmm. like, no, there's no way that character would say this line. Right. And, and I agree. Like there, mine is kind of the same thing, like not the same thing, but mine is the same thing that I've, that we've done in the past where like, I think it has its place. It's not necessarily a bad line, but like, I don't like it. And there was one line and it's the same scene. And there was one line that Donald says that I was just like, yep. I, wrote oh, this I don't down like too. that. And when he says something, he's like, I'm going to go home and push in the bush. I was like, Mm-mm. a little push, push in the bush. <laughs> yep, I wrote push, that one down too. I was, I was like, like, Oh, nope, I don't like that. Don't like uh-uh. that. Is that something that that character would say? And probably, yeah, I get it. It's not a bad line, but like, I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I definitely could see Donald saying that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything in this movie has, I think on a similar... has purpose and yep. a place and is well except done. For except for the swell. You're right. And that is probably, who knows? Like, that could have just been like completely ad libbed on Maggie's part and she's just. <laughs> kind of old-fashioned or also, something like <laughs> know your character more than there's no right. way she'd say that line <laughs> it made me so mad <laughs> i actually wrote ugh after it in uh, my notes <laughs> on a similar note i guess for my worst line i would have so i feel like it, it's not really that the lines are i mean they are bad in a, in a vulgarity sense i suppose but like a lot of Ron Livingston's lines, Ron Livingston plays Nicholas Cage's <laughs> yeah. Charlie Kaufman's Oh, he was terrible. <laughs> and I feel like, I mean, the lines are whatever they are, but we don't really need to go into what exactly is said. But I just feel like it's such a, like, I feel like in a movie where everything is so purposeful and so, like, exacting, this is just a really easy portrait of, like, oh, this is what the agent would be like, of course. Like, he's he's just a crass, like kind of a dick right. like, dude is just gonna say that and talk about who he slept with and all this yeah like, he keeps saying he keeps seeing women and saying he he did a certain thing to them yeah or he or yeah. he, that he would and it, we don't need to repeat it <laughs> it's not necessary it's not even a content thing that it bothers me it's just that it's so it's, a, it's such a like it's easy to just yeah. make the yeah. make the agent it's a this dick, pretty like, simplistic yeah, yeah, representation. Right. I get it. Well, and like, why did he need to be that way? Yeah, what I didn't purpose really appreciate does that, that Like, what purpose... It, what I purpose mean, I, does it serve to have Charlie's agent be, you know, just a I mean, young... I think it's a commentary on, like, stereotypes of agents and things like that. And I can get that. But, like, I don't know if we needed it. Well, I, think, I feel like if you're trying to do, like, the agent's indifferent to the artistic process, I feel like there's other ways you can, you can get to that without, without that necessarily. Yeah. Well, I mean, and he does, I mean, he, they get that with the, like, that he loves Donald's script. He's like, this is so great. And it's like the schlocky doesn't make sense. Like thriller. Yeah. I think you could have just had that. Yeah. I think you could have had like a really good juxtaposition of like, he doesn't understand what, charlie's trying to do but he loves donald's and he's gonna sell Mm -hmm. donald's for a million dollars you know like i think that's enough i don't think that like if you if you want to 
make him seem like he's really kind of lackadaisical or distant or distracted or whatever. Like, we didn't need to bring in the sexual harassment <laughs> or sexual no. objectification aspect of it. But it is, it does also sort of tie into, like, the sexual frustration period for Charlie. Because we do have this big True, chunk yeah. of the story where, like, Charlie is really showing that, like, that's getting to him as well. And he kind of, like, he gloms on to the Judy Greer character very quickly because he's he's just getting really frustrated. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. No, I didn't like that either. Mm-mm. But I I, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. Like, I forgot that I was supposed to be picking a worst line. <laughs> Com- completely. It's a hard movie to pick a worst line. Like, you... It, yeah, for me, it was, like, the sure. thought that this movie would have lines that could be considered worst or bad or anything like that. Like, it just... I sat down and I was like, so time to pick my best line. And that's the first time this has happened. And we've watched really good movies. We've watched really good movies. I mean, I think I think for me, because I hadn't seen it before, I was just like paying attention to everything and knew like I'd have to find a worse line. And until that point, I really hadn't found anything that I was like, there were things that I'm like, I don't like this, but that's the yeah. character that I don't like. And so the minute mm-hmm. you said that's swell of you to say, I was like, okay, well now nope. that part's easy. <laughs> like that's done. Cause I was like, that is so bad. Like yeah. the rest of the, like everything else is so carefully constructed for the characters, even the minor characters. And then that one, I was just like, no, I'm just like, sk- like skimming through this script. And I just came across Donald. It's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horses. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. I will say, I am glad that I watched this movie. I don't think I will watch it again. um, At least not anytime soon. It's It's definitely not the type of movie that I will say like, oh, you know what I'm in the mood for? Adaptation. (laughs) But... Yeah. I appreciated it. I like the movie. It's not a movie you just throw in every couple months. Right. I think it's an experience. And it's an experience that I think that writers should certainly uh, seek out. I, I There were definitely moments where I felt seen in the like writer's block frustration. I think I would have dealt with it in different ways than Charlie did. Um, <laughs> but... I appreciated it. And I think also for, you know, having such affinity for that year of the Oscars, I'm glad that I saw it because this was on the list of like, I I feel like I needed just, I've I've seen Unfaithful. I've seen this one. I've seen Chicago, obviously. You haven't seen Gangs of New York though. Um, I've not seen seen Gangs of New York. Um, I've not seen The Hours. So there are other ones I do need to see from that year. And uh, yeah, so I did, and I had I had seen the pianist as well. I had seen the pianist. I've seen yeah. a lot. That was a pretty mainstream year. Yeah, it was a good year for the Oscars. It was a good movie year. Yeah, yeah it was we, a very are... good movie year. Twenty anyway, years ago. That that was the Oscars years twenty years ago because that was tw- two thousand three. Two thousand. Yep. That was the, the Oscars twenty years ago. Well. What a wow. I, what a good time to choose this movie then. Yeah. Um, Marcus, do you have anything that you would like to plug while we have you here? Anything you want to... Any place that people can follow you? Um, no, I don't really have a lot of social media. I'm not really... Uh, um, I'm, not, I'm kind of a hermit, <laughs> I guess, on that front. Um, I did have a line from 
something that Roger Ebert wrote about Nicolas Cage, just to throw out there, since he's my favorite actor, and I'll just throw Great. it out there. But Ebert said, there are often lists of the greatest living male movie stars, De Niro, Nicholson, Pacino, usually. How often do you see the name of Nicolas Cage? He should always be up there. He's de- uh, daring and fearless in his choice of roles and unafraid to crawl out on a limb, saw it off, and remain suspended in the air. And I just really like that. Like, it encapsulates me in this movie also, what I love about Nicolas Cage, and I don't see a lot of actors that could have created those two characters in Donald and Charlie Kaufman, and then also just perform it so fearlessly as he did. I think that's a very good point. Absolutely incredible, like... And and I really did like enjoy when I was watching a unbearable weight of massive talent, like the way that that characterization of him sort of talks about like the it's the role of a lifetime, it's the role of a lifetime, and like the way that he goes about choosing things, and it is like he doesn't think about things in terms of a co- cohesive career, or like he mm-hmm. doesn't want to let himself be shoehorned into. Like, after mm-hmm. Con Air and The Rock, like, he could have definitely just sat back and been a big blockbuster action star. And he didn't. And he's still continuing to be out there in, like, movies that are unlike anything that anybody of his, of his, um, I don't like, his status Fast. would do, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And... Yeah, you think of, like, any of those other actors from, like, that big, ni- like, sort of 90s big action blockbuster era, mm-hmm. they would not be doing roles like this. They wouldn't be able to handle roles like this, and they wouldn't be doing the things that he's doing today. And he just seems to have, like, such a, like, a good nature about all of it, too, you know? Well, it reminds me of just briefly a line. One of my favorite lines from The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is when he's talking to his therapist and he says, you know, if you're if you go to work and show up every day and work hard at any other job, nobody says, hey, you're you know, everybody congratulates you. But if you're an actor, it's you're working too Mm -hmm. much. You're you're you need to make them miss you more, whatever. And he just loves to act and he wants to act. And so if it's a silly dumb movie that nobody's gonna see or if it's a huge movie he's gonna do he's gonna show up and do the work and so i like that yeah Yeah. i i really like that and i did not realize too like when i started watching that movie that (laughs) i was not expecting it but they also start getting into like a screenplay thing like they start talking about writing a screenplay together and one thing that i really enjoyed in that movie was like the like the telegraphing of like when they would say something like, we're going to put that in and then like, it would start happening or, you know, I love yeah, that. Yeah. It was so funny. Like, Oh, Melanie, you should watch that movie. I know. Yeah. I'll have to eventually. Of the screenplay. It's yeah. It's all happening. Like I do have to say you know, though, I on top of each other. And they do. Like, yeah. And they do kind of the same thing where like, they keep saying like, we're going to do this really mature adult drama without these like without anything all these big action things like it's not going to be a hollywood thing it's going to be groundbreaking and it's (laughs) going to be like just about friendship and all this stuff and (laughs) so they definitely don't want to put any of these hollywood things in and then like all of these hollywood things are happening and it's just really funny 
and the whole last act of the movie is just yeah. action and chases and gunfights <laughs> and it's so good and uh like pedro pascal is is very quickly becoming like oh, he's so good. my yes. one of my top five favorite actors just like everything he does i'm like yes i just and again too like it's kind of that same thing like He's all over the place in terms of his range and the roles that he's taking. And no, you will never miss Pedro Pascal. He's been everywhere since his eyes got shoved into his skull in Game of Thrones. <laughs> he's just been all over the place. And like, you can't go anywhere without seeing him. And, and he's just so different and unique in every role. And I, I don't want to miss him. I don't want him to go away for long enough to miss him. Just keep doing stuff, Pedro. <laughs> yep. There's one massive miss opportunity I felt in the unbearable way to massive talent. I have to say though, is when Nicolas Cage is trying to sneak into the server room to do the CIA mm -hmm. business, and he gets poisoned, and then he has to give himself the antidote. How did they not change it to him stabbing himself in the heart, like in the rug? Oh. He stabs himself with in yeah. in the thigh. Yeah. As I'm watching the movie in the theater, I'm like. Oh my god, he's gonna do the I'm stabbing myself in the heart. Thing. Or at least mention it. And then he jabs himself in the thigh. And I was just I was so disappointed in that. So the plug here <laughs> The plug, the plug here, here is go watch I'm terrible watch, way to mess up. The plug here is go watch Nick Cage, maybe. Yeah. I just thought this was really funny though, because like before this movie was even, you know, anywhere visible or anything like that, like I, I've listened to Marcus like talk about Nicolas Cage a bunch, and I just love that this movie is like very much celebrates. Um, <laughs> like we used to talk about the scene in Brooklyn Nine Nine all the time too, where <laughs> he makes oh he's in lockdown with the captain's husband, mm -hmm. and they watch oh, every, watch every Nicolas, Nicolas Cage, Cage movie except um, <laughs> Captain Curly's Mandolin. <laughs> which is the one movie that that character would have liked. But anyway, he would yeah. have liked. so I just love that there's like, there's just, I just love that there's a conversation out in the world going on frequently about like Nicolas Cage's library of work. Yes. Well, I was just looking at his IMDb and his like, he has like 106 credits for movies. Damn. <laughs> um, and he has six upcoming. So, like, prolific is... Uh... And he'll be Dracula. Yeah, yeah oh that was God. one of the upcoming ones. I want um, to see that. Anyway, okay, so I think the plug is go see a Nicolas Cage movie. And there you go. Treat yourself. Definitely. You can follow this podcast at Best Line, Worst Line on Instagram. Um, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere your podcasts are delivered. And please rate and review us. We That'll help us get found. And we'll be back with some more uh, Best Line, Worst Line soon. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you me. Thank you so much. We will definitely have to have you back. Yes. And uh, anytime. Yeah, this was fun. Was. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> have a great week, everybody. Bye. Caroline has this great tattoo of a snake swallowing its own tail. And Burroughs. 
don't know what that means. The snake, it's called Ouroboros. I don't think so. But anyway, it's called for my killer to have this modus operandi because at the end, when he forces the woman who's really him to eat herself, he's also eating himself to death. I'm insane. I'm Ouroboros. I don't know what that word means. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh?